from Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! So 25 years after the fall of Saigon, I'm still a Vietnam veteran, I'm still against that war, and I'm still looking for peace with honor, but I will settle for peace with justice. Today, a Vietnam retrospective with a Vietnam veteran, the ambassador to the United Nations from Vietnam, and Professor Noam Chomsky. All that and more coming up on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Welcome to Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Cuba's government called on millions of its citizens to turn out today for May Day celebrations designed as a crescendo in the campaign to return six-year-old Elian Gonzalez to his homeland. In Havana alone, hundreds of thousands were expected to crowd the Plaza of the Revolution for the first speech by President Fidel Castro at a May Day celebration in many years. The gathering this year is also unusual in that it is being described as an open tribute the government term used to describe the mass concentrations regularly held to press for Elian's return to Cuba. Burma's opposition National League for Democracy called in a May Day statement today for the military government to end the use of forced labor and recognize the results of the country's last election 10 years ago. The party, led by 1990 Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, said the country had suffered economic collapse since the military came to power in the early 1960s. It urged the ruling State Peace and Development Council to honor the May 27, 1990 election result by immediately convening a parliament and to respect workers' rights by ending forced labor and allowing independent trade unions. In New York, a rally is planned today in support of immigrants' rights. Organizers of the demonstration are demanding general amnesty for all undocumented immigrants. They say these workers are being exploited. They have no rights and no benefits. Members of union, community, religious, and immigrant groups are expected to participate in the rally, which will take place in the New York City Hall area. Already, hundreds of police have mobilized in riot gear. In Los Angeles on this May Day, the actors who make commercials for radio and television are going on strike. It's the first major Hollywood strike since writers walked off the job 12 years ago. The 135,000 actors belong to the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Advertising companies want to scrap the network fee system that pay actors several every time an ad runs. Instead, they want to adopt the flat rate pay system used for cable commercials. No talks are scheduled. Agencies say they've been stockpiling commercials in anticipation of a strike and they'll try to produce new ads using non-union actors. An American Red Cross workers in Connecticut went out on strike early today after overwhelmingly rejecting the relief agency's latest contract offer. About 75 strikers set up a picket line outside the Red Cross headquarters in Farmington shortly after midnight. The strike, the first by Red Cross workers in Connecticut in 25 years, may reduce daily blood collection in the state by 80 percent, but any shortfall will be made up from a national inventory, this according to a Red Cross spokesperson. The strike involves about 200 employees who conduct blood drives around the state. 
and a death row inmate in Yellow Springs, Ohio, gave Antioch College's graduating class a taped lesson in civil rights as hundreds protested nearby. Students last month invited journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was convicted in 1981 of killing Philadelphia policeman Daniel Faulkner, to give the commencement address at the small private college about 15 miles east of Dayton. He didn't talk about his case, the death penalty, or the policeman involved in his six-minute audio tape speech. Rather, he softly spoke of the impact one person can have on the world, the topic students had requested, using Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Angela Davis as examples. Just yards away near the outdoor ceremony, blue, yellow, and orange police tape marked off separate spaces where Faulkner supporters and Abu Jamal supporters quietly demonstrated. This news from Oregon. Sports apparel maker Nike rejecting demands that it follow labor standards espoused by the University of Michigan has said that it has ended talks on the renewal of a six-year contract to supply the school's sports teams. It was the third time in a month that labor standards demands have emerged as an issue in sponsorship and donations for Nike and its chief executive, Phil Knight. Nike, which has come under increasing attack over the working conditions of employees and factories or its contractors, factories, and third world in Asian countries has repeatedly said it has improved the working conditions of people who make its shoes and apparel all over the world. People get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. Oh, all you need is faith. To hear the diesels coming, you don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Twenty-five years ago yesterday, on April 30th, 1975, the Vietnam War ended with the fall of Saigon. That day, several tanks smashed through the gates of what was then known as Independence Palace, and soldiers hoisted their flag atop the building. The fall of Saigon was the last act of a tragic drama which saw two halves of the country, South and North Vietnam, locked in combat and the unleashing of American war technology on a rural society. Millions of Vietnamese civilians and almost 60,000 American soldiers died in that war. Vietnam celebrated the 25th anniversary of its victory over the United States yesterday with several parades and by freeing more than 12,000 prisoners nationwide in the biggest amnesty of its history. In the United States, there were teach-ins around the country. Today, we're going to hear from a Vietnam veteran, from the Vietnamese ambassador to the United Nations, and from Professor Noam Chomsky. They were all at a teach-in in New York called the 25th anniversary of the victory in peace in Vietnam. Noam Chomsky will begin with, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author of many books, including Profit Over People at War with Asia, Manufacturing Consent. Chomsky was one of the few Americans who visited North Vietnam during the war and was arrested during that time. He spoke yesterday at Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. Uh, part of the reluctance is uh, that, like everyone else on the panel, I find it very hard to talk about topics of this uh, 
significance and range and horror uh, in a few minutes, uh, but we have to. The other reason for reluctance is that although I'd like to join in a celebration of a victory for peace or what it says up there, uh, I've never felt that that was possible and I don't think it's possible today. And I don't want to put a damper on the occasion, but I can only tell you what I think. Uh, like uh, Ben, I remember very well uh, the moment at which the end of the war was announced. Actually, it was, a, for me, a moment very much like this. Uh, it was a teach-in, uh, in the middle of a teach-in in Boston, and uh, somebody ran down the corridor screaming, uh, war's over. Uh, Howard Zinn was talking at the time, and there was, it's also not unusual, and there's a... Uh, Lot of, there was a lot of celebration, but as Ben said, the celebration was bittersweet. Uh, we knew what had happened, and those of us with eyes open could see pretty well what was going to happen. And it wasn't pretty in the past, and it was not going to be pretty in the future. Uh, it makes a good deal to, of sense to ask the question that's raised for today's panel. Uh, what's different? What's the same? But before addressing that question, we should be clear about what was, what did happen. Uh, there has been a major effort uh, for, well, you know, actually goes back uh, half a century, but there's been a major effort since 1975 to erase the truth of what happened. Uh, uh, it's, what actually did happen is forbidden turf, and there are good reasons for that, because when we look at what did happen, we, draw, we discover truths uh, that are significant uh, and that have great implications for the future, but that anyone with power and privilege doesn't want the rest of the world to know, certainly not the rest of the American population. And it's kind of interesting to see what the effects of this massive propaganda campaign have been over the years. We actually know a fair amount about it, and I'll say a couple of words about it. Uh, just in the last couple of days, last, uh, there's been a flood of articles, which I'm sure you've all seen, uh, all over the press uh, about the uh, end of the war. Uh, and they, there's a spectrum of, a, of opinion that's expressed. It's not uniform. Uh, they vary between what are called hawks and doves. Uh, the hawks say that the war was a noble cause and we could have won if we weren't, uh, and then comes stab in the back or, you know, the peace movement or something. The doves, on the contrary, say it was a noble cause uh, and we should have won, uh, but uh, we couldn't have won uh, uh, at a, for one or another reason. At the extreme dissident end at the time and today, say this morning, uh, 30 years ago, uh, Anthony Lewis at the very dissident end of discussion uh, in 1969 said that the uh, war began with blundering efforts to do good, uh, but we misunderstood the situation. We didn't realize that it was a, we were fighting a nationalist movement. And finally, by 1969, it became clear uh, that we could not win at a cost, we could not win at a price that was uh, not too costly for ourselves. That's the extreme dovish position. Uh, this morning, you can read David Halberstam, uh, saying virtually the same words. Uh, the uh, tragedy of Vietnam was uh, that uh, U.S. force was not applicable properly because we misunderstood the situation. We didn't know it was a nationalist war. Uh, so that's the tragedy. 
Uh, why, incidentally, 1969? Well, the reason was that that was a year and a half after the business world had turned against the war and essentially ordered Washington to wind it down because it was becoming too costly for ourselves. So after that, the doves were allowed to say things like I just quoted, uh, and they're still saying them. That's the spectrum. Uh, there's, the spectrum doesn't include everybody, of course. Rather strikingly, it doesn't include about 70% of the American population, uh, which is interesting and important and something we've got to pay attention to, a fact that's not given much prominence for not surprising reasons. But this is a very heavily polled society. Uh, the business world wants to know what people think. That's the way you organize your advertising. And the um, doctrinal managers, you know, in the universities and the press and everyone, everywhere, they want to know what people think because that's how you design the doctrinal messages. So we know a lot about what people think. Uh, one question that's asked regularly on polls about international affairs, and they're careful good polls, is what do you think about the war in Vietnam? And for the past 30 years, the most recent one was just a year ago, roughly 70% of the population uh, has said the war was fundamentally wrong and immoral, not a mistake. Now, that's a remarkable figure. Uh, for one thing, you never get high figures in a poll with an open question. For another thing, those, each of those, almost every one of those people who said that made it up for themselves. They didn't hear it. They didn't read it, certainly. Uh, among educated sectors, you're not supposed to believe that. In fact, at the peak of opposition to the war, around 1970, uh, the number of elite intellectuals who f felt that, believed that was, you know, almost statistical error, maybe two or three percent. Uh, we also know that from detailed studies. So there happens to be an extremely sharp gulf, not only on this issue, it's on many, many issues, you know, international economic issues, for example, what are called trade agreements and so on. On many issues, there's a tremendous gulf between the population and the educated, privileged sectors, the one who write the ones who write the articles, and, you know, make up history and try to create it and so on and so forth. Uh, the difference is that the educated sectors are overwhelmingly within the hawk dove spectrum, if you can tell the differences, uh, and uh, the rest of the population is somewhere else, uh, and they're somewhere else on their own. Uh, if there was ever any open and free discussion about these issues, it wouldn't be 70 percent. It would you know, probably be 99 percent or something like that. Uh, that's important, and it's very important for uh, people who want to change the world to pay attention to. Uh, how much people actually know about the war is another story. I hear there are some really horrifying figures. Uh, so studies, there have been studies that ask, in which people were asked how many Vietnamese they thought died during the war. And the average figure is about 100,000. Uh, that's as if you took polls in Germany today and asked how many people died during the Holocaust, and the average figure was 200,000. Uh, if that happened, we'd think there's something really sick about uh, German intellectual and moral culture, uh, and it's not different here. Fortunately, hopefully, what's sick is highly concentrated, concentrated in sectors of privilege and power, and that's important. I won't review what did happen because you know, but briefly, uh, very briefly, uh, for about since the early 1950s, the U.S blocked every effort at a negotiated peaceful settlement that went until 1975, that included disruption of the Paris Accords of 73. Uh, it instituted a standard Latin American-style terror state in the South in the 1950s, 
which killed about 70,000 people in the 1950s, aroused resistance. Uh, when the resistance couldn't be contained, John F. Kennedy uh, invaded South Vietnam. A uh, little hidden secret about the war is it wasn't, it was a U.S. war against South Vietnam, straight out. If anybody else had done it, that's the way we describe it. It was as much a war against South Vietnam as the Russian invasion of Afghanistan was an invasion of Afghanistan. South Vietnam was always the major target of attack. That remained through right till the end. Uh, it was devastated. Uh, the end result of the war is that three countries were devastated, but the one that was hardest hit was South Vietnam, which was the primary target of the U.S. assault throughout. Uh, uh, that's the brief story. There's a lot more, and it's a lot worse. Uh, well, this 70% uh, of the population who sort of is out of control, uh, they, uh, uh, there's a name for their feeling. It's called the Vietnam Syndrome. And it's kind of interesting to see the way that's interpreted. So, for example, on, when these polls are taken, like last year when the last major poll was taken, it was it's in an you know, academic study. And the commentator, a reasonable analyst, says, here's the way he interprets it. 70% of the population, happen to be six, maybe you know, roughly 70% of the population says the war is fundamentally wrong uh, and immoral, not a mistake. And the interpretation is the American people are unwilling to accept the burdens of responsibility for international intervention. Now, that's not what they're saying. They're saying you guys are criminals, and we don't want to take part in your war crimes. Uh, but you can't hear that. What you have to hear is the American people don't want to accept the burdens of intervention, so then you develop, a, you invent the Vietnam syndrome and, you know, some a fantasy about casualties and so on and so forth. Uh, actually, the, what, the, what the polls are saying is extremely clear. Uh, the topic has never been investigated in any depth, and I think the reason is because uh, nobody in privilege wants to discover what they're going to find out. Uh, well, it is understood internally. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of the Pentagon Papers, hence never mentioned, uh, is the very end, uh, after the Tet Offensive in uh, early 1968. Uh, the Tet Offensive is what turned the business world against the war. It was clear that it was going to be too costly. Uh, right after the Tet Offensive, January 68, uh, President Johnson wanted the Pentagon to send 200,000 more troops to Vietnam, to South Vietnam, to escalate the war against South Vietnam. The Pentagon refused, uh, and the reasons were interesting. The reasons were that they said they're going to need those troops in the United States for civil disorder control, uh, because if the, if the war continues, they said the population is just out of control. And they said, you know, it's youth, women, minorities, I mean, all kind of groups that are supposed to be passive and quiet and obedient are getting out of control. And uh, we just, we feel we're going to need those troops here. Uh, that remain, that understanding remained, despite the massive effort since to erase history. By the, by around 1980, it was assumed that things were back under control. And Ronald Reagan, uh, in, you know, people around Reagan probably didn't know what was going on himself, but the Reaganites uh, decided to uh, follow their model. Their model was John F. Kennedy. They greatly admired him, and they were going to try to follow in Central America the model that he carried out in South Vietnam. Namely, you know, fraudulent white paper about how the communists are taking over the world, and then we send the Marines and you bomb and, you know, and so on. And they started. Uh, they had the white paper. The press played the role it's supposed to do, you know, great terror about the uh, communists taking over the world. Uh, but then the next step didn't happen. 
Why? Because there was just too much unanticipated popular resistance uh, all over the country in places where nobody expected it, you know, Midwest, churches, and all kind of places that are not supposed to exist. Uh, there was a lot of protest against this uh, effort to redo what they had done in South Vietnam uh, in the early 60s. The Reagan administration backed off. Uh, they were afraid that the protest would harm their other programs, to which they were much more committed, like the massive militarization and so on. Uh, so they essentially told the press to cool it. They said, forget about the white paper. And yeah, about six months later, uh, the white paper was exposed as a total fraud, as of course it was, first in the Wall Street Journal and and elsewhere. New York Times never came around. Uh, but they backed off, and instead of fighting a... Um, a, instead of a direct invasion of Central America, they fought what's called a clandestine war. A clandestine war means everybody knows about it except the American public. Uh, and the, uh, and the, the press certainly knows about it, but they don't talk about it. Uh, Noam Chomsky, we'll come back to him in just a minute. On this 25th anniversary of the end of the war in Vietnam with the fall of Saigon, Professor Chomsky of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology was speaking at a teach-in in New York. You're listening to Pacific Radio's Democracy Now! We'll come back to him in a minute. listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! on this 25th anniversary of the end of the war in Vietnam. We'll be hearing from a Vietnam veteran as well as the Vietnamese ambassador to the United Nations. But now we continue with the speech given yesterday by Professor Noam Chomsky. He's a professor of linguistics at MIT in Massachusetts. Uh, he also was an active anti-war leader who was one of the few Americans who went to North Vietnam during the war. Uh, the U.S. is not a minor terrorist power. You know, it's not Libya. If Libya wants to carry out terrorist acts, it hires private terrorists. The U.S. is a major power. It hires terrorist states. So the clandestine war, so-called, in Central America was fought by Taiwan, Israel, Britain, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, as long as it was under the control of neo-Nazis, then they had to give them up. Uh, and they fought a massive war. Uh, which was extremely destructive. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people killed, uh, you know, millions of refugees, orphans, and so on. But it's not the same as B-52 bombardment, uh, as, uh, you know, say, uh, saturation bombing of the Mekong Delta. It's not like that. Uh, so bad as Central America is, and you know, parts of it may not even survive, uh, it's nothing like the war against South Vietnam and later the rest of Indochina. Uh, and that was understood. 
the Reagan administration established uh, what they called an Office of Public Diplomacy, uh, a, uh, a propaganda agency to try to propagandize the domestic population. And that happens to be illegal, and it was finally exposed later. And when it was exposed, they described, frankly, what they were doing. They said, we have to, we're, we're carrying out the kind of activities in the United States that you carry out in enemy territory, uh, namely, and they recognize that the American population is enemy territory. Uh, you have to somehow propagandize them. Uh, later, when uh, at the beginning of the Bush administration, there was a leaked document, a high-level intelligence assessment of policy right at the beginning of the Bush administration, and it talked about intervention. It said, when the United States carries out military actions against much weaker enemies, which is, of course, the only kind you ever attack, uh, so when we carry out actions against much weaker enemies, we must win decisively and rapidly uh, because anything else will undermine uh, domestic support. And not because the population doesn't want to accept the burdens of intervention. If it was World War II, they'd accept the burdens. But because they don't want to fight in your criminal war. You know. So therefore, get it over fast and quietly and make sure nobody knows about it and so on. Uh, and this extends to other areas, too. Uh, let's turn to the domain of um, international economic arrangements, what are very misleadingly called free trade agreements. Uh, the leadership knows that the population is opposed. They can't fail to know that. Uh, they read the polls, too, just like you and I can do. Uh, and therefore, they have to do it in secret. Uh, so almost everyone, whether it's NAFTA or the Multilateral Agreement on Investments or you know, whatever, pick it, always done in secret, as much as they can. If the truth ever leaks through, they're in trouble, and very quickly in trouble, uh, because popular resistance develops and they have to back down. And they understand it. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, after the fast-track legislation had to be withdrawn because of popular opposition, uh, said that the problem is they say everybody's in favor of it, the whole business world, you know, the media, you know, intellectuals, everyone who counts is in favor. But they said the trouble is the people who are opposed have what they call an ultimate weapon. Uh, the ultimate weapon is the population's against it. And unless you can keep the population ignorant and passive, and looking at television and buying sneakers and so on and so forth, then you're going to be in trouble. Because you know? as soon as people find out about it, you're in trouble. Uh, the ultimate weapon is still there. And the real victory in the Vietnam War, in fact, in the 1960s altogether, the whole ferment of the 60s that led to all sorts of things, the feminist movement, the environmental movement, you know, massive things, uh, the real victory is the population's out of control and remains out of control despite the... Uh, uh, tremendous efforts to put them back in their box. Well, the retrospectives are, the, in the last couple of weeks or so, are unanimous on one thing. And I think we ought to be cautious about that. The peace movement agrees, and I think it's a mistake. Uh, they're unanimous uh, in claiming that the U.S. lost the war. And I don't think that's true. Uh, that is, uh, the question of whether the U.S. lost the war is not a question of fact. Uh, it's an, the idea that it lost the war is an expression of imperial arrogance. Uh, and I think we should understand that. It's true that the United States did not achieve, Washington, this is, did not achieve its maximal objectives. That is, it didn't turn Indochina into El Salvador, uh, which is the maximal objective. So they lost in that sense. But they won their major, they achieved their major objectives. And we know what the major objectives are. 
uh, and that's very important for the future. In fact, the major objectives, you can tell from the by now declassified internal record, were the same as they always are. Uh, nothing to do with the Cold War, that's mostly a pretext for the last half century. The major objectives in Vietnam are pretty much what they were in Cuba, Guatemala, Nicaragua, you know, Congo, all around the world. Uh, they were afraid that uh, uh, Vietnam was going to undergo uh, successful uh, I internal development, successful social and economic development, uh, and as it's put in high places, the rot might spread. The rot might spread to others. Uh, it might lead to uh, 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 ideological victories uh, for the mode of socioeconomic development they're pursuing. Uh, the virus might infect others, as uh, Kissinger put it with regard to Chile. And you have to make sure that that doesn't happen. They were afraid that the virus might spread to Thailand and Malaysia and on to Indonesia, which is a major prize. Uh, and maybe even affect Japan. Japan might have to accommodate to uh, an East Asian region which was independent and developing. And, and Japan would then become its industrial center. And that would mean the United States had lost the Second World War, uh, which they were not prepared to do in the late 1940s. The Second World War in the Pacific was fought to prevent Japan from being the industrial heartland of an Asian system that it would dominate. Uh, now, the United States was perfectly happy to let that happen, in fact, insisted that that happen after the war, except for the dominate part. So the U.S. plans for Japan and Asia after the Second World War were that, J that, the, that Japan's empire should be restored to it. Actually, it was put that way by George Kennett, one of the major planners. We have to return Japan's empire to it, but under our control. Crucial difference. Uh, and if the rot spread from Vietnam throughout the region, Indonesia and Japan accommodated to China, then, uh, yeah, Japan would have its empire back, but not under our control. And that's the crucial difference, and that goes right up until today to the East Asian financial crisis uh, when the U.S. blocked Japanese efforts to set up a $100 billion fund to bail out the countries because it might have gotten out of control. We're right in the middle of that today. It hasn't changed much. What were, that was the major goal, prevent that from happening. And the U.S. won that. Uh, Vietnam's not going to be a model for anybody. Uh, it'll be lucky if it survives. Uh, it's certainly not going to be a model of social and economic development. Uh, and if you look around the world at the other uh, interventions, that's what you find consistently. Uh, you're going to find it right, you're finding it right now in Colombia and everywhere else you look. That's a kind of a constant that runs through imperial history, and as the U.S. takes it over, as Phyllis pointed out, we just pick up the standard procedure. It's a global empire. You want to make sure that the rot doesn't spread, and it's not. Oh, well, when you have a virus, what do you do with it? You kill the virus, and you inoculate the potential um, victims, and that's what happened. Indochina was killed. You know, it's not gonna, you know, maybe it'll survive, but it's not going to be a model for anything. And the surrounding region was inoculated. Uh, in the 60s and early 70s, uh, the U.S. succeeded in installing brutal and vicious military dictators in every country. Uh, and, and that stopped the, uh, prevented the rot from spreading. Uh, the most important victory, in fact, was in Indonesia, uh, where uh, uh, in 1965, as you know, there was a military coup which instantly carried out a Rwanda-style slaughter, and that's not an exaggeration, a Rwanda-style slaughter, which wiped out the only mass-based political organization, uh, killed mostly landless peasants, 
and instituted a brutal and murderous regime. There was total euphoria in the United States, so happy they couldn't contain it. Yeah. Uh, when you read the press, it was just you know, static. It's kind of suppressed now because it doesn't look pretty in retrospect. But it was understood. Uh, years later, McGeorge Bundy, who was the uh, national security advisor, recognized uh, that he said, and I think he's right, the U.S. should have stopped the war in Vietnam in 1965 because we'd basically won. By 1965, South Vietnam was largely destroyed. You know, most of the rest was, was, was going to quickly be destroyed. Uh, and we had, we had saved the major prize, Indonesia. It wasn't going to spread to Indonesia after this delightful Rwanda-style slaughter. Uh, that's not a defeat. You know, it's a partial victory. And it was understood. Uh, the international business community understood it by the early 70s. They said, you, you guys are crazy. If we're going on with a war, uh, what's the point? Uh, well, after 1975 comes the need to erase the memories, because uh, the memory, and as I pointed out there, among educated circles, it wasn't very hard, because they never had the memories. They never saw what was going on. They wouldn't allow themselves to. Population saw. Uh, and it's intriguing to see how it's done. Uh, there's, of course, no war crimes trials, major, you know, huge war crimes, no trials, no reparations, no apology, nothing. Uh, Robert McNamara wrote a book a couple of years ago which was described as an apology. The reaction was interesting. He was attacked by the hawks for treachery, and shockingly, he was welcomed by the doves for having finally come around to their side. Let me stress, shockingly, because what McNamara in fact said was, uh, yes, there was a crime, we couldn't win. Uh, and his crime, he said, is I didn't tell people quickly enough that we couldn't win. And he did make an apology to the American people uh, for having caused them problems, not to the victims, those, not to those four to five million people who are dead and the others who are dying right now from chemical warfare and so on and so forth. No apology to them and certainly no, nothing to do to help them. Uh, but that's considered an apology. Well, you know, in a way, he went beyond others. Uh, President Carter, his position was different. Uh, he, his position was, I'm quoting, we, know the, we owe Vietnam no debt because the destruction was mutual. Uh, to check that out, all you have to do is take a walk around Westchester County in Quang Nai Province, perfectly obvious. What's remarkable about that statement is that it elicited no comment. I mean, not a murmur of protest, except among, you know, the usual scoundrels like folks here. Uh, but no comment to say that uh, there's, we owe them no debt because the destruction was mutual. George Bush came along and he actually picked the anniversary of Kennedy's invasion of South Vietnam to intervene to prevent the European Union and Japan from their efforts to end the Vietnam embargo, which was part of punishing them for daring to stand up to the master. So he blocked that. But he was nice about it. Uh, he told the Vietnamese, he said, look, you have to understand, we do not threaten retribution. We only want an honest accounting of the crimes that you committed against us. Uh, that's all. Uh, again, no comment. Well, you know, it's, there's a pretty tough competition for depravity. Uh, but maybe the peak, uh, at least to me, was just a couple of days ago, which perhaps you saw, when uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, William Cohen, was in Vietnam to, you know, make, to explain to them that we're not demanding retribution and so on. Uh, he said that he would not dwell upon the past, 
but he departed from that on one occasion and did dwell upon the past. And it was described graphically in the Washington Post. Uh, he and 250 women dwelt upon the past. Uh, he watched while 250 women were carrying out, uh, were, they were on their 15th day of an excavation uh, in which they were sifting through pieces of mud uh, and putting whatever they found on wire mesh uh, to see if they could find a fragment of something that might be identified as a piece of a jet plane uh, which was uh, shot down, we're supposed to believe, while it was over Main Street, Iowa or something. Uh, and if they could find uh, maybe a piece of a jet plane, maybe they got to identify uh, the bones of, you know, the remains of some pilot. Well, you know, that's proper. But here's 250 women. The only thing they have to do is sift through the mud for 15 days while uh, William Cohen watches them. Uh, that means you don't just win a war. You have to degrade and humiliate the victims. That's extremely important. In fact, there's a name for it in uh, international strategic theory. It's called credibility, establishing credibility. You have to, that's why you bomb Yugoslavia. That's why you, you kill hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq. Uh, you must establish credibility. Uh, that's constant. People have to be afraid of you. You want to understand why, just ask your favorite mafia don. He'll explain. If somebody gets out of line, you don't just take the money from them. They're supposed to pay. You beat them to a pulp. Then everybody else gets the idea. That's a leading principle of world affairs, and it remains so. Uh, well, there are heartening aspects to all of this, and let me mention them. And the, again, that's what I said. Uh, the worst rot, and it is a very profound rot, is concentrated in privileged, uh, educated sectors. Uh, a good deal of the rest of the population really is out of control. Uh, that's the real achievement of the 1960s and everything that followed, uh, and it's the real hope for the future. Professor Noam Chomsky speaking yesterday at the 25th anniversary commemoration of the end of the war in Vietnam, the day Saigon fell. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! If you'd like to order a cassette copy of today's program, you can call 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. When we come back, we'll hear from a Vietnam veteran and the Vietnamese ambassador to the United Nations. Stay with us.
You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! as we continue our 25th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War special with Ben Chitty, a Navy volunteer in the Vietnam War from 66 to 67 and also in 1968. Ben Chitty, uh, the Clarence Fitch coordinator of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War in New York, speaking yesterday at a commemoration ceremony at the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in Manhattan. The moment when the war came to an end 25 years ago was a bittersweet moment for me. Uh, as I recall, which is not very clearly, I got drunk as a skunk somewhere in North Carolina. Uh, the war had finally come to an end, but you know, I had wanted more. I wanted peace with honor. Now, honor is not so mysterious. Uh, it means being honest, accepting responsibility, making amends for injuries. I didn't want much. I wanted official apologies, reparations, technical assistance for Vietnam, and a change in the government, a whole new government here at home. What'd I get? We got new fronts in a never-ending war. We got counterinsurgency operations, low-intensity conflict, uh, police actions abroad in Afghanistan, Lebanon, Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, the Persian Gulf, Somalia, Haiti, Kosovo, with Colombia being the next stop. We got censorship and repression at home orchestrated by the military-industrial complex and the national security state, their allies and agents. Look at what happened to the sanctuary movement, the South African solidarity movement, militant environmentalist, and the new anti-terrorist measures. And somewhere along the line, the Soviet Union disintegrated, but not the subversion of democracy. There was no repudiation of the policies which created such destruction. There was no resolution of the prolonged crisis of legitimacy. The system still isn't working for most people. It's still killing people at home and abroad. So some kind of peace came to Vietnam 25 years ago, but not to me. For one thing, we were changed. <clears throat> that war was unwinnable long before most of us got to it, but no one told us, or we didn't listen. We had to find it out for ourselves. It was an experience which could raise your consciousness. We learned a new American history. The U.S. is not a democracy, but an empire, not a benign empire, founded on genocide and slavery, expanded on commercial interest and chauvinism, wrapped in a missionary spirit. We learned a new military history. Most U.S. wars have been wars first of conquest, then of intervention, sending soldiers somewhere to fight with the people who live there over how they can live or which government they can have or if they can live at all. Even the details look a little different to us. The U.S. military learned to practice total war, wars on entire populations, modern wars. We fought the Native Americans for centuries killed or relocated them and took their land. We took Indian fighting to the Philippines in 1898, and then we found gooks to fight in Mexico, Haiti, and Nicaragua. We refined our technology of death, machine gunning Moros on Mount Dajo in 1906, firebombing Kako bands in the Haitian boondocks in 1919, strafing Sandinista villages in 1929, finally incinerating Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. We still refine it. In the Gulf, we proved the futility of opposing U.S. interests with fuel air bombs on the highway of death. And according to one report, that videotape persuaded Slobodan Milosevic to withdraw from Kosovo. 
makes Nogunri in Korea, Milai in Vietnam, the firefight in Mogadishu look like trivial excesses, lapses of discipline. After all, most of the people we killed in Vietnam were non-combatants, and we killed them at a distance with explosive and incendiary devices. We even found a new veterans history. Our government has only rarely kept faith with its veterans, from the Revolutionary War veteran cheated out of his bonds to the Civil War veterans defrauded by lawyers in cahoots with a corrupt veterans administration, to the World War I bonus march vets dispersed by bayonet from their nation's capital, the Korean War POWs accused of disloyalty, the atomic vets of the Cold War dying of cancer by friendly fire. For another thing, we had some problems of our own. <clears throat> we had to help heal ourselves. We formed rap groups to deal with alienation, which was the original Vietnam syndrome, uh, and post-traumatic stress. We started going back to Vietnam to help rebuild what we had helped destroy. We even built our own memorial, the Wall in Washington, which is now so popular with tourists that we forget how bitter was the opposition to its design. We had to deal with the POWMIA legend, a story started by the Nixon administration to rally support for his secret plan to end the war and then fostered by anti-communist fanatics and more than a few crooks and charlatans inside the government and out. We tried to force recognition of dioxin poisoning from Agent Orange exposure. The government began to give us that finally, just as it began sending half a million men and women into the Persian Gulf, where the Pentagon did them with depleted uranium, nerve toxins, and experimental vaccines the same way it had done us with defoliants. We watched as the major legislative reforms of the Vietnam era, the War Powers Act, and the Independent Council Statute were ignored or flouted or perverted in an orgy of partisan bickering, then abandoned. We saw another reform, the all-volunteer army, racked by the everyday and deadly oppressions of our society, race and class, which loaded up the military with minorities, poor people, and immigrants. Gender, which left women subject to se sexual harassment at every level, sexual identity, where don't ask, gave a green light to witch hunts and finally to murder. We learned of the environmental costs, the toxic wastes abandoned in the Philippines and Panama, and also Kahoolawe in Hawaii, Eglin Air Force Base, Cape Cod, Fort Drum, Fort Dix, Diamond Shamrock's production of Agent Orange in the Ironbound community in Newark left a Superfund site so toxic that today it's capped and fenced and under guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can go to see it. We saw how the lessons of our experience became military control of the media and minimum American casualties, which turned into unreported deaths and hidden injuries. How many Panamanians died in Operation Just Cause? No one counted. How many Allied soldiers were injured in the Persian Gulf? That count is still coming in. Now, these events have some things in common. The real lessons of our experience have been ignored or corrupted by the same folks who sent us to Vietnam and their political heirs. The machinery of death is more efficient, certainly more expensive and profitable. In fact, while it's politically dangerous to risk a soldier's life in responding to ethnic cleansing in the Balkan, Balkans, it's okay to send Marines to their deaths in a flawed and unnecessary but very expensive and very profitable airplane like the Osprey. Well, you know, it's enough to make you crazy. <clears throat> so how crazy are we? People say that the U.S. could have won the war. We know they could not. People say the anti-war movement harassed and betrayed the soldiers. We remember 
that the government drafted and enlisted us, lied to us, and let us die. By giving me something constructive to do, the anti-war movement saved my sanity and maybe saved my own life. People say that the anti-war movement lost the war. Wait a minute. Let me get that straight. I get sent to a war I can't win and I should not be fighting. I come back and say this has to stop. So now it's my fault. Of course, this revisionist obsession with alternative fictions is not really about strategy or tactics or about geopolitical constraints or even the various and notorious betrayals, the liberal media, Walter Cronkite, Robert McNamara, even Jane Fonda. It's about you and me, the folks who told the truth about the war. If we were right, then the people who supported the war, the folks who favored intervention, the people who sent us crusading against communism, they betrayed us their own sons and daughters. Anti-war veterans are the witnesses against them. We have been through the meat grinder. We saw the system was not working. We knew the war had to stop. And we're still here. We know Operation Just Cause was little more than a badly bungled arrest. We know we went to war in the Persian Gulf to put the Emir of Kuwait back on his golden throne. We know that the Sudan missile strike was a clear case of homicide by depraved indifference. We know the Balkan bombing campaign, a perfect war with no American casualties, or so they say, failed to bring peace to the Kosovars, whether Albanian, Roma, or Serbian. How many of these Panamanian, Iraqi, Kuwaiti, Sudanese, Kosovar people are better off for American intervention? We know more. We know the question is one of democracy, of political power and accountability. We know the problem is not bad people, though I've met some very bad people, but a bad system. We know the answer will be based on mass mobilization and militant resistance. Here's an example. On the island of Vieques off Puerto Rico, several dozen people practicing nonviolent civil disobedience have stopped the U.S. Navy from bombing their island for more than a year. The largest and longest civil disobedience campaign in recent U.S. history. We know Puerto Rico is a colony in the U.S. empire. We know the Pentagon has told lies, broken promises, and we know the Navy's claims of national security are bogus. We understand what's going on in Vieques, and that's why it's, imp and why it's important. If or when, when the people of Vieques chase the Navy off their island, it will be our victory too. Now, even in VVAW's glory days, when we defied the Attorney General and the Supreme Court at Dewey Canyon 3 in Washington, disrupted the Miami Convention, seized the Statue of Liberty, walked out of the Gainesville Courthouse, acquitted on every count, VVAW was as much a state of mind as a formal organization. Vietnam veterans who opposed the war turn up in many places, in Black Veterans for Social Justice, Veterans for Peace, Project Hearts and Minds, the Veterans Vietnam Reconstruction Problem, project, what we bring to the movement besides passion and perhaps credibility is this. We have learned something about just and unjust wars. We know that for us, this never-ending war of ours, the real war, the civil war in the heart of the empire and the belly of the beast is a war of self-defense. We know the system can waste you in a heartbeat. Walk around the protest camps in the live fire zone on Vieques. You'll meet veterans. <clears throat> just one more example. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I'm alienated. Sometimes I'm a little grumpy. I don't like the way things are. I don't trust the government. Barry McCaffrey also served in Vietnam. 
He thinks we can cure the pestilence of drugs in our communities by locking up a lot of people here at home and by arming a brutal and corrupt military and its paramilitary allies who use terror to keep the rich rich and the poor poor in Colombia, a country already fully integrated into the freest of global markets, the international drug trade. Which one of us is nuts? So 25 years after the fall of Saigon, I'm still a Vietnam veteran, I'm still against that war, and I'm still looking for peace with honor, but I will settle for peace with justice. Ben Chitty, coordinator of the Clarence Fitch chapter of the Vietnam Veterans Against War, as the symposium and the 25th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War was taking place yesterday, two ships with more than 1,000 U.S. Marines headed to the island of Vieques in anticipation of an FBI-led operation to arrest protesters. At the same time, U.S. and British warplanes bombed northern Iraq. And finally, we end with the ambassador to the United Nations from the Vietnam, Nguyen Than Chao. You, you in the West, you, you start your April with the Fool's Day. <laughs> and we, the Vietnamese, we ended our April 25 years ago with the day which has gone into the history of our people as the landmark of the war for independence and freedom. 25 years have passed, and the rumblings of the shells and the warplanes had been silenced. But the rumbling in the mind of the people on both sides still going on. And we perfectly understand the agony of those who got involved in the war on both sides. Yes, your boys came to Vietnam to fight without knowing what's going on and what's for. We did it because we know what we were for at the time, and we have arrived at it. I belong to a generation which has gone through different wars, you know, that sandwich our country. And I think that's enough. No, war is no good. Nowadays, you can have, you know, some kind of crazy doctrine about, you know, let's war have a chance. But I don't think it's proper to say so, you know. We suffer in the war. We understand the suffer, sufferings of the people in the war. And we also know that we have the Nobel Peace Prize. We don't have the Nobel Prize for war. But Vietnam is the land of the heroes, yes. We have 8,500 mother heroes who lost their relatives, who lost the members of their families in the war. Some of them lost entire the family from the husband to the sons and daughters to the grandchildren. Yes, they were heroes, but they suffered so much.
We also have 300,000 people still listed as missing in action. And you understand what the agony would be on these people. We also have thousands of deformed babies and children born to the families with parents affected by Agent Orange sprayed on the people of Vietnam by the United States. The responsibility is clear. And I believe that it's now time that serious thought should be focused on these issues on both sides. The government of Vietnam has set aside 79 billion dollars for the victims of Agent Orange. But that's a pinch of salt in the sea. It's not enough. It's not enough. Let alone the mental scars on those people who got involved in the war and came back to give birth to these children. Yes, we have it all in Vietnam. It's a lesson that we on both sides had to learn. We learn, you know, how a people would do to save their land. And you should learn how to stay outside something which is not yours. Vietnamese ambassador to the United Nations, Nguyen Than Chau, speaking yesterday at the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in Manhattan at a 25th anniversary ending of the war in Vietnam. And that does it for today's program. If you'd like to order a cassette copy, call 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. Democracy Now! is produced by Maria Carrion and David Love. Special thanks to Grayson Challenger and Anthony Sloan. Our engineer today is Matthew Finch, our technical director, Errol Maitland, from the studios of WBAI in New York. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening to another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!